Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning as I speak to you, it is Mother's Day. Mother's Day celebrated in Canada and the United States and perhaps everywhere in the world. But of course, in Jewish tradition, every day is Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's right up there with belief in God and don't murder. The Talmud regards it as one of the most difficult mitzvot to perform properly. And so this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the fifth commandment and chat with you about what's so special about the mitzvah to honor parents. You know, many people think that honoring parents is some kind of payback for all those years of changing diapers and paying for colleges. Actually, this mitzvah was given to the generation who wandered 40 years in the desert, where God automatically provided everyone's needs according to the Torah. The parents didn't feed their children. They had manna to eat. The parents didn't provide clothing. According to Jewish legend, the children's clothes grew with them and never needed washing. Nevertheless, it was precisely this generation who had left Egypt who stood at Mount Sinai, and it was that generation who heard God utter, honor your father and mother. We learn from this some amazing things. The mitzvah honoring parents does not depend on what your parents did for you or even whether they were good parents. Rather, we honor parents according to Jewish tradition simply because they gave us the gift of life. Imagine you were drowning and a stranger came along and saved your life. You would be forever indebted to that person. All the more so we should be grateful to our parents who gave us life. The Talmud teaches us that there are three partners in the formation of a person, a father, a mother, and the divine. And if we have gratitude to our parents for the grift of life, how much more so, says the Talmud, will we be grateful to God for creating and sustaining the world? for giving us air to breathe, flowers to smell, and soil to walk on. Now, of course, those of you who've listened before and those of you who know a bit about Judaism know that commandments don't simply um, exist as arbitrary concepts. They are always followed up in Jewish tradition with the how-to because our ancient Jewish rabbis were interested in trying to measure the completion of a mitzvah. How did we know that one had fulfilled the mitzvah? There had to be more than just an arbitrary system. And so here too, in the fifth of the commandments, we have the notion of how do we measure completion of this mitzvah? 
And there are actually two parts to this mitzvah. Honor your parents, which in Hebrew is known as kibud avaim. And according to Jewish tradition, these are the positives to do to your parents. And revere your parents. In Hebrew, the term is morah avaim, the don't do actions. The basic way to honor parents is to care for their needs. Specifically, according to ancient Jewish tradition, one was to bring them food and drink, including helping with meal preparation and grocery shopping, assisting them with paying bills, banking, transporting them, maybe giving them a ride to the doctor. And one possible, it is preferable for a child to live near the parents to better care for their needs. Now, according to the ancient tradition, there are really no limits to this. The Talmud tells us how the great Rabbi Tarfurin would bow down to serve as a step stool for his mother to climb in and out of bed. And I would venture to say there has um, hardly been a Jewish child who attended a religious school that it has not been taught the story in the Talmud of Doma ben Nesina. Now, Doma ben Nesina is not really a person. He's an archetype. And here's the story that we found in Talmud, Kedushin 31a. Doma ben Nesina was the son of a jeweler who refused to wake up his sleeping fathers when the representatives of the holy temple, the Beit HaMikdash, came knocking on his door wishing to buy certain precious stones for the Kohen Hagadol's breastplate, the Urim Vaturim that are discussed in the book of Exodus. It so happened that the key to Nasina's diamond vault was lying under his pillow, that's the father's pillow, and Doma refused to wake his father even at the cost of a fortune in a lost diamond sale. As a reward, the Talmud tells us, the very next year, representatives of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, once again came to Doma searching for a para aduma, a red heifer that was used in the ceremony of purifying the priesthood that was in his father's herd. This time, his father was not sleeping, and the previous year's loss was fully recouped, and then some. The Talmud lauds this selfless act of kibud ha'av, honoring one's mother and father. Now, before we move on to some of the other mitzvot, perhaps I'll share with you a modern version of the story that I've just shared with you from the Talmud. And it can be found in a remarkable concurring opinion rendered by Judge Douglas McCain, in a run-of-the-mill landlord-tenant case styled Hodgkincliffe Building and Company versus Hapuridu. It is a case in the New York courts. The landlord sued to remove Mrs. Hapuridu from her rent-stabilized apartment due to the fact that she had spent several years in Greece looking after her sick mother, who eventually died in Greece. Upon her mother's demise, the woman sought to return to her apartment, but the landlord claimed she had abandoned it 
as it was no longer her primary residence. The decision rendered by the three-judge panel was to allow her to remain in the apartment. Moreover, one of the members of the panel, Judge Douglas McKean, while in full sympathy with the woman, not only restored her to apartment, but in a most poignant and yet pointed Musar statement, expounded on his concurring opinion. So, let me read to you his opinion. It is not from the Talmud. It is from, of course, this New York legal case, which I'm not going to give you all the citations, but the uh, decision was uh, crafted by Justices Davis and Schoenfeld and J.J. Um, McCann with a uh, concurrent um, by J.J. McCann in a separate opinion. He writes, there was a time in many cultures when the care of sick or elderly parent by a child was the hallmark of familiar responsibility. But according to that frequently uttered refrain, times change. Mothers or fathers, sometimes both, would often live under the same roof with their offspring, and the hands-on care provided would be substantial. To the outsider, considerable sacrifice seemed involved. But for the caregiver child, the care of mom and dad was the natural progression of life's journey. Those who reared and raised and gave life would be comforted and looked after in the twilight of their own. Sad to say, as with so many old-fashioned values, adherence dims with each new generation, and parental care in some instances has been reduced to an occasional call to a nurse's aides or an infrequent obligatory visit to a nursing home. But there are those undoubtedly dwindling in number who remain students of the old school, staying true to basic tradition and still giving life to words now seldom spoken, my parent will never go to a nursing home. This tenant referring back to the case, is one of those rare individuals and her heartfelt decision to travel to Greece to be by her mother's side during a fatal illness should not visit upon her the draconian penalty of forfeiture of her long-held regulated apartment. Indeed, all of us, I would suggest, can learn from this case of what devotion to parent entails. Let me then return to the notion of what Jewish tradition, as expressed in the Talmud, the legal code, asks of parents and children. So the Talmud tells us, in the modern vernacular, that parents should be visited and phoned as frequently as possible, depending on the parents' needs and the child's schedule. In general, we are commanded to be sensitive to the fact that parents naturally worry about their children to try and send a quick email or phone message every day or two. Especially if you are traveling, call them to let them know you have arrived safely. It is amazing to consider that even in the ancient days, though I have rephased these in modern terminology, that there was a concern that children would leave the parental home and that what obligation did the child have to the mother? or father who was left behind. 
according to Jewish tradition, if the parent is old and infirmed, the child is responsible to arrange for care and must pay for it if the parent cannot afford to do so. Of course, the Talmud tells us that we should never let our parents feel that they are a burden or that you are assisting only out of obligation. And according to the Torah, the reward for honoring parents is a long life. One possible explanation is that taking care of parents can be very time-consuming. So God compensates, so to speak, by adding extra years to our own life. As an additional bonus, when your children will see you honoring your parents, they will learn the importance of this mitzvah. That's the payback when it comes your turn to be on the receiving end. All of this sounds very technical and legalistic, but that is the way Jewish tradition understood the need to express its commitment to the premise of mitzvah, of an action that can be measured both in its failure to be completed and its completion. Now, honoring our parents has many, many different components uh, within Jewish tradition, and there are many other ways that I could um, share with you the mitzvot of fulfilling the fifth commandment. But as I mentioned earlier, Judaism perceives that honoring parents serves as a springboard for the gratitude we should feel toward God. But this issue goes much deeper. The commentators point out that the first five of the Ten Commandments, if you were looking at this in a visual representation, that would be the first tablet, contains mitzvot between man and God. Don't serve idols, don't take God's name in vain. Whereas the second tablet contains mitzvot between man and man. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. So where is the mitzvah to honor one's parents? It's in the first set of five. Because from the moment of infancy and beyond, the way a parent acts toward a child forms in the child's consciousness a paradigm for how God relates to us. The primary role of a parent, therefore, is to communicate to the child, you are loved and you are cherished. You are unique and special, creative and talented. You are cared for and protected. The most important message a parent can communicate is, you are not alone in this world the idea of not being alone in this world is our foundation of our relationship with God. A person may find themselves in a terrible situation, illness, poverty, and war. But according to Jewish tradition, they can know that God is with them. If a parent is untrustworthy or uncaring and unusually harsh or permissive, it subconsciously sets into the child's mind that God must somehow be the same. And this is an emotional handicap that can be difficult to overcome later in life. 
You know, as our world moves from one stage to another, which we usually call progress, there may be a tendency for children to feel ahead of their parents. And certainly my children feel that they are more technologically savvy than I am, and they are more up-to-date on music and fashions. But honoring parents is, of course, a um, eternal Jewish heritage. Now, who is the first parent in Jewish tradition? You might think Abraham would be the person that we would want to pick as the paradigm of parenthood. But inasmuch as this morning we're honoring mothers on Mother's Day, I thought that I would share with you some words about the first mother within Jewish tradition. And that first mother is Abraham's partner, Abraham's spouse, Sarah. So a few words about Sarah. Of all the matriarchs, Sarah is perhaps the most accessible to us. Her story is told many times in the biblical narrative, and we come to see her from many a viewpoint. Two aspects of Sarah's story stand out clearly to us. One is her relationship with Abraham, and the other is her status in his world. She was, no, she was not only a personality in her own right, but as Abraham's mate, she was an important balancing factor in his life. Abraham and Sarah were not just a married couple, but a team, two people working in harmony. In the biblical accounts of other patriarchs and their wives, we find a certain disparity between men and the women, a disparity that becomes increasingly apparent over the generations until the woman is no longer extent other than subordinate to her husband. Even the great women of the Bible, women who did great deeds, they were subservient to their menfolk in terms of their role and status in society. Sarah enjoyed a special position, apparently as a function not only of her independent personality, but also of a legal formal recognition. Her special position may derive from the fact that Abraham and Sarah were close relatives, as well as husband and wife, because according to the sages, Sarah was the daughter of Haran, Abraham's older brother. Indeed, it is explicitly written in the Torah, Genesis 20, 12, that Abraham told Abimelech, king of Gerar, that Sarah was his sister, the daughter of his father, although not the daughter of his mother. Basically, this claim is likely to have been true. Abraham may have been using an imprecise definition of his relationship with Sarah, describing her as his sister because they were so very close, both in terms of kinship as well as in other ways. Moreover, sister was a common term of endearment for women in early Eastern cultures. For example, in the Song of Songs, we find the phrase, my sister, my spouse, my sister, my love. The appellation, my sister, was not only an indication of affection, 
but also referred to a woman of a certain status. A sister marriage was common, at least among royalty and many Near Eastern cultures, such as those of the Hittites and the Egyptians. The sister wife was the chief wife, as opposed to the other secondary wives who were the outsiders. An important indication of Sarah's status and position, as well as of her own forceful character, is the fact that although she was Abraham's wife and worked alongside him, she acted independently of him when circumstances required. We do not have here a man, the focal personality around whom the action revolved, and the acquiescence or passive women caught up in his orbit. More than this, it is obvious that on several occasions, Abraham not only respected Sarah's wife, but also felt the need to turn to her for counsel and guidance, or admitted an obligation to obtain her agreement before making a decision. We also see that from time to time, Abraham acted not only on his own initiative, but upon instructions from Sarah, sometimes of his own volition. And in one specific unique instance as expressed in the command of God. Genesis 21, 12, and all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. The sages have made the interesting observation that the patriarchs were to some extent dependent on the superior prophetic powers of the matriarchs. In many biblical texts, it is clear that the woman determined her family's fate at least as relation to women in relation to children and the family succession. Here in the Torah, the patriarchs were subordinate. It was not they who made the decisions. It was not they who determined the shape of the great future. In every one of these cases where the decision was made openly, as with Sarah, or deviously, as with Rebecca, the matriarchs acted not only as helpmeet, but as independent personalities. As such, it was the matriarchs who dominated. It was their vision, their foresight, their determined family continuity and the continuity of control over the family. Sarah is even more outstanding in this respect because of her decisiveness and our articulateness. The passage in the Torah where Avram is called by his new name, Abraham, Genesis 17.5, is both revealing and significant. Sarai, too, underwent a parallel name change and became Sarah. While we find in the Torah other name changes, as when Jacob becomes Israel or Hosea ben Nun becomes Joshua, Only one woman is granted this privilege, and that woman is Sarah. The change of names hints at a change in the whole essence of Abraham and Sarah's being, in their whole way of life. It is a profound transformation, which involved them both equally, with a double dimension, Abraham and Sarah together. There is another aspect of Sarah's story. She was childless, a personal tragedy for her and for Abraham, but it did not affect their strong, close bond. Hence, it is possible to understand Sarah when she offered Avraham, her servant Hagar, to bear his children. This act must be understood in the cultural context of the period, 
and by the fact that Sarah nourished a grain of hope that she too might benefit from this union. She says in Genesis 16, it may be that I obtain children by her. At the same time, Sarah's behavior reveals a deep sense of security and personal connection to her husband. She was willing for Abraham to have children by another woman because she felt certain that the ties between Abraham and herself were not dependent on merely having children. It's interesting to compare Sarah's reaction to her barrenness with that of another biblical figure, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. Hannah could not reconcile herself to childlessness, although her husband Elkanah assured her that he loved her more than ten sons. Hannah wanted at all costs to have a child of her own. Sarah, on the other hand, although she desired a child just as much as she was happy to bear one around whom she later built her life, is shown to be able to cope with the fact that she might never become a mother. She could contemplate with at least equal equanimity a situation in which Abraham's children by their own maidservant would be hers only by adoption. The Abraham-Sarah bond was thus personal spiritual, not only legal biological. They saw themselves not so much as child bearers and raisers, but as a team bent on the realization, realization of a specific ideal. And what is that ideal? That ideal was to create a preeminent relationship between the two of them in the name of the God that they had discovered. In the biblical story, we find the recurrent promise that Sarah, in spite of her barrenness, though as we remember she did give birth to Isaac, would become the mother of the nation. In a sense, she would bear a son who would fulfill God's covenant with Abraham, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, seventeen nineteen of Genesis. In the fullest sense, Abraham and Sarah were thus brought back from barrenness to the family hearth. Incidentally, the account of the angel's visit to Abraham announcing the coming birth of Isaac is interesting for the variety of means that the messengers used in trying to draw Sarah herself into the conversation. According to the sages, it was not the angels who spoke to Sarah, but God himself. Indeed, the Lord never spoke directly to any other woman in the Torah but Sarah. It seems as if this special mission, the talk with Sarah, had a significance because what she heard altered the whole course of her life. Now, as it were, she were to be born again with a new name and a new personality. After many years in which she had ceased to function as a woman, she would almost forcibly be dragged into the female round of pregnancy and giving birth. These two lived together. And Sarah and Abraham will be remembered as the parents of Israel and is perhaps to, in memory of them, that the Ten Commandments, number five of the Ten Commandments, is dedicated. Kivod av you shall honor your father and mother. 
on this day, known as Mother's Day. I want to wish all the parents out there a uh, happy and uh, wonderfully celebratory day. I hope that your children uh, honor the fifth commandment and that you understand that through their honoring, they honor not only you, but the divine creative presence in the world. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten. I wish you shall have a good day. Shalom. Israel.